0: Snuff production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday the 26th of April. I'm Tom Tilley and on today's briefing, a dramatic escape from China.
1: I think they saw us as a bit of a troublemaker and, and last year they decided to sort of punish us.
0: That's journalist Michael Smith who recounts the knock at the door in the middle of the night that led him to flee China. That story in just a moment. First, Annika Smathurst is here who went to a very historic game of AFL yesterday afternoon. Yes,
2: 78,113 people attended the MCG, which makes it the biggest crowd at any sporting event globally since the pandemic began. It beat some cricket matches uh, in India about a year ago. There's also been some big matches over in WA, but nothing compared to being at the G yesterday for that Anzac Day match. It was Amazing,
0: And I know Collingwood lost, but apart from that, how did it feel to be there?
2: Incredible. I've been going to those matches for years and they always get a big crowd. Usually bigger than that, to be fair, can get up to, you know, 80,000, 90,000 sort of people there. Um, It wasn't that much, but it just felt amazing to be Mm. going to the footy in Melbourne, especially Melbourne. You know, this is the city that was in such a terrible lockdown last year. So incredible vibe, loved it.
0: Yeah, beautiful moment for Melbourne. And what about the Anzac Day moment? What was that like?
2: Yeah, to have all those people stand there and just respect that that silence and, and have the last post played. I've been there sometimes when some idiots decide to be a bit stupid and yell out their team's name during the minute silence, but yesterday everybody was amazing and just stood there in absolute silence, all 78,000 of them amazing.
0: All right, well, let's get into the big news of today.
2: WA residents will learn today which lockdown measures will extend beyond midnight tonight.
1: I can't predict what's going to happen, but I do think there will be an extension of some form uh, of control.
0: WA Premier Mark McGowan there. The Perth and Peel regions went into lockdown on Friday after coronavirus leaked out of hotel quarantine. A Victorian man caught it in the McCure hotel quarantine. He tested negative, but then once he left, he passed it on to a friend uh, and then another person caught the virus at a restaurant visited by the man.
2: No new cases of community transmission were recorded in WA yesterday. Over the weekend, Premier Mark McGowan said the federal government should be doing more to help states quarantine overseas arrivals, saying WA's hotel system was not sustainable.
0: But that was shot down by the federal defence minister, Peter Dutton, who on the ABC said the WA premier was just being defensive. I'd love to tell you that uh, air bases or Christmas Island facility is fit for purpose, but it's not.
2: WA has cut its cap on international arrivals by half for the next month as it deals with the outbreak.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to watch this from New South Wales where we've dealt with much bigger outbreaks without locking down the whole city and you've got Mark McGowan there and they've had just a few cases come out of this hotel outbreak and he's still not telling people whether he's going to wind back restrictions. What do you make of it?
2: Yeah, and New South Wales managed to take a lot more people from overseas uh, quarantine and keep the borders open. We know that WA have kept their borders pretty tight for a while and haven't really had to deal with this. So you can understand maybe that they're a little bit more sensitive, having not dealt with as many outbreaks as New South Wales. But we are getting to the stage now. We're getting people vaccinated. And we were always told, always, that this was about, you know, dealing with the curve and the peak to make sure hospitals weren't overwhelmed not trying to eliminate it, but it seems some state premiers are still really keen to make sure they don't have any cases.
0: And what do you make of that back and forth between McGowan and the federal government where he's got this situation that he's taken a very conservative approach to, and then he's he's pointing the finger at the, the feds for not doing enough on hotel quarantine?
2: Look, the feds hate it when the borders are closed and they hate lockdowns. That's been made pretty clear they don't actually run hotel quarantine. There's been a debate over this whether they should have since the start of the pandemic, but we know now that it is up to the state. So I think it's a little bit late in the piece to be saying the system isn't sustainable. Different states obviously take different amounts of uh, returning travellers. Victoria's cut theirs at different times. And uh, obviously there's been bans recently on people coming in from India. They've reduced the numbers there because of the risk. So that's where the federal government sort of has an impact. That's why they meet for National Cabinet. But I think it's a bit silly to be saying at this late stage Mm. that the federal government should be taking over that program.
0: Speaking of India, the global community is sending medical aid there as the country deals with a massive record-breaking COVID surge.
1: The situation in India is a devastating reminder of what this virus
2: can do. Director General of the World Health Organization speaking there. India yesterday reported a record number of new COVID cases for the fourth day in a row with almost 350,000 cases announced.
0: Yeah, so to put that in context, the US at its peak just hit 300,000. So now we've got uh, India hitting almost 350,000 in the last three days alone, nearly a million new cases.
2: UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson took to Twitter to say the UK stands side by side with India as a shipment of oxygen concentrators and ventilators left the UK for New Delhi.
0: Yeah, the oxygen supply um, situation's been really grim. It's been running low at hospitals and they're in so much demand that they're being moved across the country under police escort. It's pretty tough to watch what's going on in India right now, isn't it?
2: It is incredible. And having been to India a couple of times, I was sort of so scared about this happening the whole time and and shocked that they've almost got away with it for so long. It's Mm. a country with such a high population, not great controls over hygiene and a hospital system that really isn't geared for this type of pandemic. So it's just a terrible combination of all those things that's seen this massive flux in recent days.
0: Yeah, and, you know, over the border in China, a country with a similar population, around about a billion people, they've dealt with it so Differently and, and so much better, essentially. And the missing Indonesian submarine has been found broken into three pieces on the ocean floor.
1: It is not human error, not human error, because they followed the right procedures during the dive.
2: Indonesia's Chief of Staff, Yudo Magono, there. Indonesia's president, Joko Widodo, sent condolences to the families of the 53 crew.
0: Australia had been involved in the search for the vessel, which went missing on Wednesday last week while carrying out diving exercises. The submarine was more than 40 years old and three separate parts were found more than 800 metres underwater.
2: Indonesians have responded to the incident by calling on their government to update the military equipment.
0: And the federal government's used Anzac Day to declare Australian troops will not be returning to Afghanistan anytime soon.
1: The world is safer from the threat of terrorism than when the Twin Towers were filled
0: almost 20 years ago. But we remain vigilant.
2: Prime Minister Scott Morrison speaking at yesterday's dawn service in Canberra there. The 80 Australian troops still in Afghanistan will leave by September. 20 years after Australia's involvement in the war was sparked by the 9-11 attacks.
0: The withdrawal of Australian forces comes after the US announced they'd be leaving, um, even though the Taliban remains a powerful force in the country.
2: the Defence Minister Peter Dutton has told the ABC Australia won't be going back, even if the situation in the country gets worse.
0: We don't have uh, any plans uh, to, to go back in, and I can't see how that's possible in the foreseeable future. I think there would be a different way of dealing with those uh, with those threats than, than troops on the ground. Dutton warned Australia would be focused more on our own region and instead a conflict in our region involving China and Taiwan uh, remains a concern. All right, Annika, we'll catch you tomorrow. Um, right now, a very dramatic tale out of China.
3: In the early hours of a September morning in Shanghai last year, journalist Michael Smith heard a knock at his door. The series of events that followed made national headlines. Grim turn for relations with China. Two Australian journalists whisked out of the country amid an extraordinary diplomatic standoff. The ABC's Bill Bertels and Mike Smith from
1: the Australian Financial Review... Both were escorted onto a plane bundled out of China. For the first time in 50 years, there are now no journalists working in China for Australian news agencies.
0: It was a very dramatic moment, as you can hear. Uh, Michael Smith from the Australian Financial Financial Review and the ABC's correspondent Bill Bertels were both pulled out of China. Um, It was a massive diplomatic standoff um, over national security. It was just the latest in a series of troubling developments between
3: China and Australia. So on this episode of The Briefing, Michael Smith is going to talk us through his hasty exit from China, um, what he saw during his time in the country and whether Australia should try and get back in China's good books.
0: And speaking of good books, um, Michael's just released one. It's called The Last Correspondent. So from all his years um, working in China, living in Hong Kong as well, he takes a deeper look at the rise of this now economic superpower and its fight with the West.
3: Yeah, Michael, your story starts with a knock on your door. It's after midnight. You stumble to the door. You're in your boxer shorts and a T-shirt. What? happens next?
1: That's right. It was um, September last year. Uh, It was pretty terrifying, actually. So, uh, you know, I'd I'd packed my bags. I'd been told by the Australian government I've I've got to get out of China. So I sort of uh, knew something bad could happen. Uh, sort of staggered downstairs. I was, I was sort of asleep when, when they came, so I didn't really know what was going on. Uh, opened the door and there was sort of seven uh, uniform police standing there on my doorstep. So, when this happens in China, uh, it's pretty scary. They sort of flashed their badges at me and uh, asked my name and then sort of pushed their way into the house. Um, we went into the lounge room and they sort of sat me down on the couch and surrounded me. They had one guy, had a big camera, sort of spotlight in my face, and uh, they sort of started reading from this three-page document. They they had a translator with them and they sort of told me I was a person of interest in a national security investigation and that I couldn't leave China.
3: Where did your mind go to in that moment? Like, Did it jump to a worst-case scenario or were you sort of generally calm?
1: I've had a fairly sheltered life and that was probably <laughs> as scared as i as I, i've ever been i don't know i did remain calm you, ju- you just sit there and nod politely and uh and take it all in there's sort of not much you can do but but in the back of my mind i thought my god they're going to take me away to some prison mm. you know my partner was there in the room and we're sort of looking at each other going you know oh my god where where is this going to lead
0: so imagine that was probably the scenario playing out in your mind as you sat there um, with those police officers in your
1: apartment, what happened next we 'd uh, actually booked tickets out the next night, so my my bags were packed and but they'd put an what they call an exit ban on me, which means you can 't leave the country so if I turned up at, at the airport to get my flight I, I wouldn't be allowed out, so any hopes of uh, leaving the next day were was scrapped. So I immediately, I rang the Australian embassy and they went into high alert and uh, said, stay posted. Um, you know, I didn't sleep that night. And then the next morning went straight in into the Australian uh, consulate in, in Shanghai. And that, you know, a whole series of events unfolded there, which sort of ended up in in us being placed in diplomatic protection, which is, you know, something I never thought would, wow. would happen to me. It's something that happens to Julian Assange. Mm. Yeah.
3: Because there's been a bit of an exodus of journalists from China, um, not just Australian journalists, but um, foreign journalists from the United States as well. There are no accredited Australian journalists working for major media outlets in China for the first time since the 1970s. I mean, what does that fact tell you that so many foreign journals have been forced out of China? What's going on?
1: It's almost sort of like this North Korea situation. China's sort of almost going back to where it was Uh, during the Cultural Revolution and sort of becoming more and more closed. And, you know, there's still hundreds of foreign journalists in the country. And, and I'm friends with quite a few of them, but they're, they're sort of telling me it's getting harder and harder to do their job. And it's almost as if the Chinese government feels that they don't need us anymore. They don't need us to tell their story. You know, they're using Twitter a lot now and social media to sort of spread their message. And, you know, I think they're fed up that these pesky journalists are hmm. coming into their country and, and writing negative hmm. stories.
0: So what's the bigger picture here, Michael? Because I guess as we follow the news, media, we see all these little moments like, you know, you guys having to pull out of China was one of those moments. Recently, we saw, you know, the belts and roads initiative agreement between the Victorian government and China ripped up. There was all the skirmish around the virus investigation in Wuhan. Mm. But your book sort of goes deeper. You talk about the one child policy. You talk about the incredible economic development in China over the last few decades. What's the
1: biggest story here? What's going on? I was there for three years but i've been covering china since uh since the 90s when, when i lived in hong kong and you know china's an amazing story it's 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 this giant economy they have pulled a lot of people out out of uh Poverty and and the rapid pace of sort of change there, both economically and, and socially, has just been staggering. And you know, you travel around China and there's you know amazing infrastructure everywhere, and you know people are sort of wealthier and and happier than than they used to be. But sort of, I guess overlaying all that, you've sort of got this sort of one party state. It's it's ruled by the Communist Party, and and Xi Jinping came into power in 2012, and he's really changed things. I mean, China was sort of opening up. Before, But it feels like under Xi, it's sort of going the other way. They're not willing to um, sort of play second fiddle to the United States anymore. And they're not willing to, to be lectured by Australia about human rights and other issues. So they're, they're sort of getting very uh, emboldened, I suppose. And you're seeing, you know, this very aggressive foreign policy and, and, and a lot of pushback. And, and it's going to be interesting to, to see how the rest of the world deals with that. It's It's sort of quite sort of scary stuff.
3: What's China's problem with us? Because I feel like, yeah, I think that that's just the question I'd like to ask. Like, what is their problem with
1: Australia? I think the problem was we've sort of got into the front line of this sort of wider, you know, US-China dispute. Australia is a bit of an easy target because, you know, we rely heavily on China economically. And I, I think China feels we got a bit too big for their boots. They, they weren't very happy with The Morrison government for making that call about having an inquiry into the origins of of coronavirus, and but it was also a whole lot of other issues that were building up for years. Particularly, Australia was the first country to ban Huawei, so they were very angry at that, and I think they saw us as a bit of a troublemaker. And and last year, they decided to sort of punish us economically by putting bans on on some of our exports. And you know, I can't see a way out of this. Uh, We're definitely Mm. in. In their bad books, they're not returning our minister's calls. So, you know, I don't know if we can get back on an even keel or not.
0: Michael, our listeners um, recently will have heard about the, the fight over this Belts and Roads initiative that the Victorian government signed with China um, a few years ago, which was recently ripped up by the federal government. Um, that's the latest skirmish in this ongoing war. It's opened up a new front. Can you explain what the Belts and Road initiative is is and just how central it is to China's strategy for economic growth and power
1: around the world. It's sort of this giant infrastructure spending program. They they talk about, you know, more than a, a trillion dollars. And, and the Chinese rhetoric talks about recreating these old Silk Road trading routes by building, you know, just hundreds of bridges and ports and, and rail lines sort of linking, you know, linking Asia back up to Europe. And so as a result of that, China's sort of been, investing a lot in, in poorer nations like, like Africa, um, you know, huge infrastructure port projects. But it's sort of also, it's a very political sort of thing. They, they want countries to sort of sign up, you know, as, as a sign of support for what the Chinese government's doing. It's sort of seen as a way for China to extend its soft power as well. So because of that, Australia and, and many other Western countries have resisted this. So, so Australia, quite some years back, refused to sign To sign up to this but then you know Victoria went out alone and did they could see benefits from it I think they were hoping to attract a lot of Chinese investment into Victoria and, and help Victoria sort of build a lot of its infrastructure so this sort of really annoyed the Morrison government and Recently, they tore up this deal, and and I'm not sure about the timing, but but it sort of really angered uh, China. And one minute, you're sort of welcoming Chinese investment into Australia and and, uh, the building of these big infrastructure projects, and and all of a sudden, we don't want them anymore, and and China's sort of being accused of using it to to wield soft power here. So it's, it's a really tricky situation, and we sort of have to do reassess some of these things.
3: We have certain perceptions of China in this country that, you know, it's this massive country, it's a bully, it um, doesn't have any press freedom, there's a lot of human rights abuses going on in the country, um, the ones that we know about. You spent time in China. What do we get wrong about it?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, and I've sort of tried to get this across in the book, because when you when you're living on the ground in China, it's actually you know particularly Shanghai is a really big commercial city, and it's a it's a fantastic country, and everyone's just out trying to live a, a happy life. And I think the problem now is we kind of demonise the Chinese people a lot, and and we saw that during coronavirus. But you know they're actually great people and a good sense of humour, and and they've all got sort of amazing stories. And you, you know you've got these people who grew up in the Cultural Revolution, where these really really tough lives and um and then suddenly now in the 21st century they're all they're all sort of met some of them are quite wealthy and the economy is booming and so their lives have sort of changed uh, very very dramatically and unfortunately you know everyone's trying to live under this sort of um very authoritarian uh political structure which which sometimes in day-to-day life you don't really notice. And then, but if something goes wrong, if you do something wrong, or you, you're you a bit too outspoken, you can face uh, a prison or worse. So, you know, you just have to be sort of quite careful. So in a way, you know, people can be on, on edge a bit, but uh, it's not always noticeable. Where are we going to go from here? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a bit nervous about this year, and I, I'm more nervous about it than I was, say, six months ago. And I think particularly you've got Joe Biden's made a decision to sort of push back on on China and sort of rally the allies together, but China seems to be digging its hills in and and people talk about, you know, we're sort of heading into this sort of cold war era and we really don't want that. We don't want the two biggest powers in, in the world on very unfriendly terms. I think we're just in for the sort of really uh, tense period. I don't think China's going to change. And Xi Jinping, uh, he abolished limits on on his presidency a couple of years ago, so he can stay in the job as long as he wants. So, I don't think uh, he's going to go anywhere. So, I think the best we can hope for is the status quo remains and um, and and it sort of won't escalate any further. But, but we're all going to have to live with this sort of Big new power, which is China, it's sort of not not going to go away, and um, we're just going to have to somehow deal with that.
3: That was Michael Smith, former China correspondent with the Australian Financial Review, and he's written a book called "The Last Correspondent: Dispatches from the Front Line of Xi's
1: New China."
0: And just after the interview, we kept recording, and. Um... Michael said
1: this about our questions. Your questions were great. I mean, I've done a few interviews and they were the best questions I've had so far.
3: Oh, stop it. I bet you say that that? to all the interviewers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Michael. Just had to keep that in the edit.
3: Well, I thought we could just be humble and not have that in, but I'm glad you stuck it in there.
0: fascinating interview and a fascinating situation that, as Michael says, is going to go on for years, if not decades, is tension between um, China and the West. They're flexing their muscles, expanding their power and my take is that we really need to get our shit together. We can see this pattern of behaviour from China. We can see where it's going. So we need a long term strategy, not an ad hoc uh, you know, series of motive responses that can be swayed by short term domestic political pressures. We need a smart long term strategy here. All right. Thank you for listening to today's briefing. Tomorrow, is Australia being left out in the cold on climate change?
3: Listener.